This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening, you're with Charmila Ganesan and Lee Chuelin. Tonight, a conversation about the appification of our government. So this is because of the new Kita Jaga app that the Economy Ministry has launched, which has us thinking, why all the apps? Um, first, we're going to be talking about how much the government has spent on developing these applications and whether we're actually tracking their effectiveness. And then later on, are apps really the way to go anyway? So tell us, are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? And how many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call 777 tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or WhatsApp are you mobile number 018-789-8899. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08 and earlier this week, the Economy Ministry launched an app that can display the daily price of each item according to the locality that you're in. Uh, the app is called Kita Jaga and it's meant to be um, a way to help consumers buy wisely with price data at their fingertips. Of course, extending also to um, talking about um, or rather dealing with the rising cost of living that people have often been uh, pointing out. And now, according to the Minister of Economy, Rafizi Ramli, the app was built by his ministry in collaboration with a local organisation known as Kita Jaga. So, of course, Kita Jaga may sound familiar to many people, partly because there is a uh, there's a word that's been dropped because the Kita Jaga kind of mentality and subsequently website and so on was born out of the Kita Jaga Kita movement um, from the pandemic, which allowed people to signal when they needed assistance with uh, groceries and so on and so forth and others to help out. So now it's it's morphed. Um, the website, if you look up Kita Jaga Malaysia, still says that, but then the app is what we're talking about today. So as you mentioned, Shamila, in theory, what it does is uh, it allows people to have specific prices for specific items um, at their, to compare within a location and what it looks like in case you haven't kind of downloaded it and experimented with it yet. Upon creating an account, the app will come with a map of all restaurants, food outlets, grocery stores near you to help narrow your search and then the app will also point out the cheapest available price of your desired meal or grocery store item with the exact name and location of the store shown up on the map. So this is obviously helpful. Um, I think for most in most situations, um, even if you're not particularly price conscious, this is just a helpful tool to have. So I want to be clear that we are not um, that we don't have any issue with the creation of the app itself. But we are going to be talking today about how much the government spends on apps and how it increasingly feels as if everything or many of the functions that they perform or that they want to help people with lead you down the path of clicking, yes, I would like to download. Thank you very much. And I think of... I was going to say I think, but I don't think that's even fair. Um, I know that the point at which most Malaysians felt the most co-opted into some of this was with the Maisajatra because yeah. there was no real choice, was there? Um, and while I understand 
the reason that was necessary. Um, of course, the the appearance of Mysore Jatra on our phone screens and in our lives um, did open up a question of how much are we willing to spend on this sort of technology, this process of digitizing our public services, and whether that's really the path to go down. So if we look at MySajatra, for instance, um, on uh, in October 2022, the Ministry of Finance set a ceiling price of 196 million ringgit for the procurement of the MySajatra app over a period of two years. So this was developed by Entomo Malaysia and the government of Malaysia as part of our COVID-19 uh, efforts. That, of course, has evolved. Now, Mysajatra uh, manages things like organ donation as well. Uh, it has an infectious disease hotspot tracker. You can use it to locate health facilities. So essentially, it's um, on its way to becoming a health super app. But the question is, of course, the larger question rather is, in this process of creating these apps, is it actually helpful? Is it at some point going to become um, every service that you want to access, whether it's paying your parking, whether it is uh, applying for um, some kind of certification of the government? Is it eventually going to lead to an app? And is that what we want? There are layers to this too, I think. Because so firstly, if an app is useful, I think people are broadly speaking okay with it. Um, but then after that, there's a question also about the proliferation of apps, how nowadays, if you want to pay for an app via parking, you're not always sure where it is that you can go. You're not always sure where in your phone you should go to pay for the location that you're currently in, which can be very aggravating. So that's one layer where you're willing to use the app. It's just maybe that there are too many of them or they're not user-friendly or what have you. The other part of it is that you may actually not be inclined to use it partly because um, you might not have a smartphone, partly because you might not be technically adept. So the push towards apps um, can be problematic on a number of fronts. And then, of course, it is also, if we take a step even further back, a question of public spending. So the question of spending is actually what we're going to be looking at first. Um, we're going to be speaking with Kyril Yusuf, co-founder of the Sina Project, um, about how much these apps cost to develop in the first place and whether we're actually tracking their effectiveness, whether they are useful. Um, but we'd like to hear from you. Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Build fortunes modestly. BFM 89.9. It is 6.15. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're speaking about apps um, and public public facilities, public services, whether this is the direction we really want to head in. Um, this is coming on the wake of the Kita Jaga app that was launched uh, just on Monday. Um, and so we're first looking at how much apps like these cost to develop and whether their effectiveness is uh, being tracked sufficiently. So we'd like to hear from you. Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Now, joining us on the line is Kyril Yusuf, co-founder of the Sina Project, which is a civic tech initiative. Kyril, good to have you with us. Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, It's always good to join you. 
So, first of all, could you walk us through just how many apps the government currently has? Um, okay, so currently, um, according to their official um, site, which is Gamma, um, currently there's 209 apps from 95 agencies, um, of which in 2023 alone, um, there's 20 new ones. And so let's start with the good then. What are some positives to the all-in approach that the government has taken to using apps as a touch and service point? Well, I guess I think uh, I I can see where they're going in this direction because at this time, time for, according to the latest statistics from the Department of Statistics, like night in terms of household um, coverage of access to mobile phones, it's like ninety nine point six percent. So. Um, and then in terms of internet access, it's about 95.5%. Um, so given these statistics, and if you're going to be provisioning digital services, it kind of makes sense on why government is going into this, this direction, because um, we're heading to this um, situation where most Malaysians do have access to mobile phones. Are there apps that you would say have been um, particularly effective or helpful from the government? Um, at least on me, on personally, no, <laughs> um, because uh, part of this is because uh, you don't generally use government services on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you kind of use the after effects of a government service, but not on um, so. Um, so for most people, it's not something um, that you would need an app or you would because you don't simply interact with the government service on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so. I think for most people, the experience would be that you don't have an app and maybe the only app that you would use from government might be MySuggestra because that was kind of forced on, onto all of us. Um, but I don't think most people would have a government app that they, we actually use on a day-to-day -day basis. So with that said then, um, and also considering the fact that the government is assuming that eventually we'll all move towards being accustomed to apps or being able to access or prefer them even, I mean... Aren't over 200 apps actually just too many? And how do we get to this point? Um, actually, it's that's kind of a hard question to generalize <laughs> um, in terms of what is too many and what is too little. Um, and, and the reason for that is uh, because generally when you're talking about um, a, a mobile app, uh, you're talking about using something on the phone. And in general, the user experience of using an app is better than the mobile web browser version. Um, so if you think about all the websites that you access um, in terms of non-government services, generally, if it's on your phone, you would prefer the app because it gives you a better experience. Um, so having said that, in terms of the 200 apps, uh, the reason I said it's difficult to generalize it is because there's so many of them for different purposes. Um, so, so some of them, for example, um, are very specific. Like there's, I think there's an app that's highly rated uh, called AgriMaths, which provides farmers with all sorts of uh, help on calculations on fertilizers and so on. That's very specific. Um, if you say, do I need that? No. But if I'm a farmer, that's probably an essential app. Would there be a need for more of these kind of apps? There could be. Um, it's difficult to tell because their government itself is huge and provides so much services. Um, but then on the other side, uh, out of those kind of 200 apps that I've seen, some of them are extremely trivial. They're like weather apps or time apps or um, timetable applications and so on, which don't, are, are, I would say, trivial and are not needed. Um, Let's look at how the apps are developed and created. Now, are there key distinctions between a commercial or community app versus a government app? Can you approach the development of them in the same way? Um. 
it's um, not okay. I'm trying to think like development in a different way because <laughs> uh, there's two types, right? So one, you can term symptoms of uh, the development in terms of a technical development or software development. That's one. Um, on the other side is in terms of uh, the kind of services that you're building into an application. So, um, so commercial applications often um, are developed differently because they're providing um, kind of a private sector service, right? Um, buying, um, um, let's say, online shopping or e-banking and so on. Uh, whereas when you're developing a government application, it generally tends to be uh, an application that's related to a government service, applying for a new passport, um, applying for a vaccination, um, um, checking the status of your um, road tax, for example, or your road license. Um, so as such, uh, the way that it's developed, it's different because um, a lot of the government applications are dependent on these kind of key government services, which often involve private data. Um, and yeah, pri private data and official data about uh, about how you do things and interact on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. So we've been talking about expenditure and uh, I understand it's going to be a tough ask to get a total figure for the amount that has been spent to develop these apps. But can you give us an idea of how much it might cost to create an app and then yeah. we can start there? So I think uh, a clear distinction um, to, to make for, um, uh, for people is that Think of the app as kind of like the last part of building an, um, uh, an application. Most apps are dependent on something else, a supporting infrastructure. Um, so if, you're, if we're just going to break it down to just the application itself, right? Not, not the data or the backend services, the staff that's required you know, to provide support and so on for those government services. Um, generally, it, does, it shouldn't cost that much. Um, so I'm just averaging here, of course. Um, so assuming, let's say it's 50,000 ringgit on average for a simple application. Um, I mean, it, um, and there's 200 of them. So in this case, just the cost, the basic app, uh, cost of building all these applications would be, you know, in the ballpark of around 10 million ringgit. So it's not a huge amount of money, uh, even if you include maintenance and so on. Um, so uh, even if I in, uh, increase that price, just building the apps alone, it's not going to cost much money. Uh, the, what costs a lot of money is actually the infrastructure um, to provide the data and services those applications need. For example, um, when you're making an appointment, um, uh, for example, oh, a, a simpler thing, when you're checking the weather for uh, on your app for the weather, the app itself probably is trivial to make because it's just telling the thing. What, what actually costs is the huge infrastructure behind all the weather stations, uh, the meteorological department to provide that data for the app. So yeah, so in terms of the app itself, uh, I don't think it's a huge amount uh, I mean, just um, guessing here and um, doing some average amounts. It's not a massive amount of money. Now, we have been speaking about um, all the different apps that exist. Would you say that this has all been a good use of government funds? Again, uh, I would say it will go on an app-to-app -app basis, right? Um, and I, I come back to that uh, that example of the um agri-mass thing, right? Um, for the farmers that use and depend on that app, they would probably say, yes, that's brilliant. Uh, on the other hand, if it's saying uh, a simple weather app, for example, 
then that's probably not a good use of funds. Um, so, I, so I can't have a simple answer on this. You'd actually have to go on a case-by-case -case of those 200 apps and judge each one on its own merits. Um, but are there ways to track usage and effectiveness of these apps? I mean, how do they gauge the success of, of any particular one? Yeah, I think uh, I, can, I don't have those metrics, but at least for us on the public side, um, in terms of the, um, there are the public reviews on the Gamma site on, on by Mampu. It's, I think it's gamma.malaysia.gov.my. They actually publish the um, reviews of each of those apps and how many times it's been downloaded. So at least we know the popularity and what people think about it. Uh, these apps are also on the official Play stores or, or Google Play or Apple store. Uh, so again, those reviews are public. Um, so at least on the public site, we can gauge the popularity and roughly from those reviews on whether they're uh, positive or mostly negative. Yep. So that's on the public side, but has the government been transparent on uh, app effective, uh, effectiveness, um, uptake, whether they're serving their function? Are there reports or data that's widely available on this? Um, at least for me right now, I don't see... Um, some of these. I think there might be some individual reports on those apps. Um, you, you might find them, but in terms of overall, um, I don't, at least for me, I, I, I'm not aware of any reports um, on, the, on, on judging the effectiveness of it. So for the most part, even government websites leave a lot to be desired. This is something that is, I think, just widely acknowledged. Uh, what are the barriers to the government creating simple and effective digital services? Um, I think it's a need to reform the approach of designing and implementing these digital services. Um, I, I, the, the approach so far, and I think it's kind of being replicated in the development of these apps, is that you're just simply building an app or you're simply building a website. Um, in, instead of thinking, um, going through the whole approach of, you know, um, designing the services um, um, and uh, yeah, in terms of actually what services are we supposed to provide and how well it should be done. Um, so I think there needs to be a whole reform in terms of the way uh, that government approaches um, the design of these applications um, and then the implementation of it. Um, and from what I've seen, the government is aware of this, um, for example, um, um, and oh yeah, I'll, I'm, not, I'm not good to into details of this, but the government is aware that there needs to be a shift um, into reforming to how it implements these digital services uh, from open data to including the applications and APIs that enable people to uh, develop innovations around it. We have a couple of minutes left and I wanted to close with this point from Kamarun, uh, who says, I'm okay if there's only one app for all of the government services um, and that we only have one login for everything, like the Google or Microsoft login. Um, and when it comes to things like government payment, one template should be enough. If they only use one login, the data can be consolidated. Uh, all of which to say, is a government super app the answer? Um. Uh, yeah, I think this is a dangerous one um, because you're basically creating a government monopoly um, on this single app. Um, and as we've seen um, from a lot of complaints um, around other government services that are implemented in a in a kind of monopolistic form, um, that convenience um, can in, can lead to higher costs and lack of innovation uh, because there's only one implementer. Uh, and then the other dangerous uh, part about this is the fact that 
yeah, you're going to have a monopoly in terms of possibly one vendor, um, one access point for all our digital services. And this is can be quite difficult to implement um, and can uh, create a barrier to competition and innovation um, because uh, the government has, uh, as we've seen from Mysa Jatra, uh, can have a very powerful role in terms of determining monopolies through regulation. So if you have this one single app, the government is basically creating one single monopoly now by one single vendor. Um, and if it's, for example, only available for, let's say, Android, now all of everybody on iPhone now needs to buy an Android just to deal with the government service. So yeah, there's a lot of dangers in having one huge monopoly. Um, of, of course, I understand the convenience point, but yeah, that's a, a dangerous way to go through. Kyril, thanks for speaking with us today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was Kyril Yusuf, co-founder of the Sinar Project, helping us understand the uh, finance that goes into developing apps um, and how to look at whether they've actually been effective. Uh, we'd like to hear from you, though. Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? And how many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note, or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Become fat. Fabulous Millionaires, BFM 89.9. It is 6.38. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we've been talking about government apps. Um, This comes on the wake of the Kita Jaga app being launched on Monday, an app that allows you to look for the best prices when it comes to either groceries or meals um, in your locality. Um, It's a location-based app. Um, But essentially, we're expanding that conversation to talk about apps in general and whether um, they are necessarily the direction to head in, particularly as more and more apps from the government have been coming out. So what we want to hear from you on, are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? And how many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, let's start with a voice note. This is from Madhav. I do appreciate the government's intent on going more on a technological basis using apps for uh, everything, especially as it relates to the public. Uh, but as the guest speaker mentioned, uh, probably we, government services will use it maybe once or twice a year uh, to pay our uh, taxes, uh, personal and you know assessment taxes and whatnot, uh, like what the transport minister is trying to do with renewal road tax, which is again once a year. So what I would probably suggest is uh, a good number probably will be three apps in total. One specifically for you know the municipal parking purposes uh, because you don't want to uh, have uh, a general app and then click to this menu and that menu in order to pay for parking and, and stuff like that. So maybe one uh, specifically for parking. The other one for state government matters, uh, for whichever state that you're in, and one for the federal uh, government matters. So that maybe will include the you know road transport department uh, area to renew your road tax and um, whatever other things that we need the government services for, even maybe for the health ministries. Um, 
clinic uh, appointment bookings and whatnot. So that can be done uh, within one uh, single app. So yeah, probably maybe three apps would be a good number. Madhav, thank you for that. Um, I feel like I could get on board with that. I was thinking while Madhav was explaining, um, you know, what it is that he would be looking for about the ministries that are actually people facing. Because, for example, the defense ministry, the home ministry, I think, you know, I'm not sure these are ministries that require applications. Uh, Tourism also, if they did have one, it would be a nice to have, but I don't think that it would be anything essential or providing a service like that. Whereas something like transport, uh, health, these are things where if the government were to come up with an app and were in fact to make it easy for us to, like Madhav said, make bookings or to uh, renew road tax, which is happening, um, to have our driver's license there, all these sorts of things, I feel as if those are elements that would in fact be useful. I I guess it doesn't necessarily answer the question of whether or not in so doing we end up leaving people behind. Yes, which is a tough one because that's a larger tech question. Um, of course, on the face of it, one might argue that given the proliferation of smartphone technology, how mm. much more affordable they're becoming, um, maybe... 10 years from now, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Um, but but I worry about that too. I worry about access. I worry about user, um, user interface and how easy or difficult it can be. I do think though that that point about identifying which are the ministries that people are more likely to need this kind of interfacing with versus um, the, the agriculture app that our guest talked about earlier, which is a much more specialized app that particular people would probably find very useful, but on the other hand, not necessarily something the general public needs. And this also speaks to to your point about ease of use. This is a theme I feel on our show recently when we've been talking about what it is that we want from the government. I think we end up getting torn between centralization and convenience and the concern about uh, the and concerns about monopoly and security and so on, but then a proliferation of apps, half of which can't be used or half of which are outdated and never to be updated again. And I, I struggle with it as well, because if I'm thinking about it logically, um, parking is an easy example. If I think about what I want out of a parking app, I do just want one. I definitely do not want to have to download a different one for each state that I'm in in the country. Or depending on what pay platform you might want to use, you need a different one. Yes. And then I'm giving away repeatedly my number, my car plate, my uh, payment method. So I'm not a huge fan of that. But then when you counter with uh, centralization, there, there is a little bit of a twinge around that, right? Because there are concerns about security. So yeah, I will say though that when I have, when I find myself downloading these sorts of apps when I travel or I mean travel around the country, um, or if some whatever function forces me to get an app temporarily, those are the ones that languish away. And when the time comes for me to use it again, I've forgotten they exist, which again is not the point. Um, You know what annoys me is when you go to um, a city um, or state that you're only there for a few days, you're forced to put in money into, say, a parking app, and then 
it sits there, uh, a, a three ringgit balance that you are never to use again until five years later when you go there again. And yeah, that annoys me quite a bit. Um, that said, we are actually getting a number of people talking about apps that they do use, uh, which is something I'm interested to hear as well, whether there are government apps that um, you do find useful and you do find uh, that you, you return to. I love to hear them. So Roshidi, for instance, says, I use the EPF app to check my savings every so often and, of course, annual dividends. I don't, but I could see how that would be really helpful. I use the website um, and actually something like the EPF, I feel like... If given that it's not something you're going to need urgently or at your fingertips, I'm quite happy just using the website. Legion, meanwhile, says, I work in government. The most useful app I use is the eHRMIS, which is the mobile application version of that. Now, um, in case you're wondering what that is, it's the Human Resource Management Information System. So... Um, Legion goes on to say, I use it to apply for leave online. It used to be a chore to have to do this. First, you fill in a form. You get the form physically signed by the head of department. Then you submit it to the department secretary, who then had to submit it to the hospital director. The whole thing used to take about two weeks to a month. Now, with my HRMIS, the handphone version, it becomes simpler. We cut down on the paperwork. Now leave approval takes one to two days. This reminds me actually of something that we were talking about in Parliament yesterday in relation to the um, health minister saying that digitization in the hospital setting is slow and that even where and we're at like 27%, I believe it was, that's what she said. So this is interesting, Legion. Thanks for sharing how it's working out. It's also really good to hear about apps that are, in fact, not just... Um what did what did someone else say earlier? Um, actually, no. Our guest Kyril said how some apps you only use once in a while. Something like this, daily, uh, perhaps not daily, but very regular usage. Very important that it's actually effective. Um, do keep your thoughts coming. We'll come back to them very shortly. We're asking you: Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? And how many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? If you'd like to share the apps that you do find yourself using, send those through as well. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Bribe free ministers. BFM eighty nine point nine. The Business Station. It's 6.47. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about government apps and um, how helpful they are. We'd like to hear from you. Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We have more thoughts on this. So, um... We have two messages that actually very neatly sum up how I feel uh, about this. So Munif says, I don't mind the abundance of apps. I do mind the issues that are faced by senior citizens and cavemen like me who are not tech savvy, let alone people who can't afford compatible phones. Whatever initiative via these apps should also have a physical or non-app equivalent. An app providing live updates for the price of groceries? Great. Have RTM provide splot... Uh, provide slots displaying the same thing. An app for ease of government hospital appointments. Awesome. Ensure registration via calls or countertop forms are friendly and convenient. Don't make apps a lump sum dumping ground to say that you've executed an initiative. Um, 
initiate inclusively and thoroughly instead? Those are great points. Um, so in the end, right, it comes right down to what is the problem that you're trying to solve or make easier? And how does this app that you're developing and launching do that? And often it feels exactly like this, this we need to have an app. It makes us look good. But does it actually help? Not all the time. So I, while I agree with this and while I think that if you want this to be something that reaches the people, then reach the people. Don't just reach the digital people. Um, I, I think where I hesitate or where my, my mind still goes, yeah, but maybe an app is more useful here, is the, for example, Kita Jaga. So you can have RTM provide slots displaying uh, live updates for the price of groceries. What RTM cannot do um, is display it specific to your location, yes, which is exactly. what the app does. Mm. And so I think in those instances where that's when you can justify an application over a website or for that matter, over non-digital non-digitized versions of those things. Uh, broadly speaking, Munif, I agree with the principles of your message. I think the execution of it sometimes um, will be a bit tricky. To add on to Munif's point, um, and actually what you were saying, Lynn, I think the other thing is, of course, is this something I have a choice in or not? Because I may not want to know location-specific um, prices of groceries. Maybe having it on RTM is fine for me. Um, but the problem with some of the government apps is that you don't have a choice except to use the apps for certain functions or um, the alternative, which is a website, is so unusable that you're left with very little choice. And it's that issue of choice, I think, that annoys a lot of people as well. So Catherine says, um, I think let's talk about the question of access to smartphones. Because um, if you talk about 99.6% have that access, that could be the percentage of the people who have access to phones but not smartphones. Even if they do have one that's smart, navigating it um, and navigating through apps, government apps, knowing how to use it, it's not guaranteed. Having applications are a good move, but it should also be intended to reduce the workforce um, in the public sector to save costs because face-to-face -face is not that common to resolve issues or to apply for something in view of IR4 and so on. We have seen low quality web and apps developed for government, which later serve no use for the public and are a waste of money. Um, so, the statistic. I am not qualified to verify or not. I do think, though, that our speaker was talking about um, who owns a smartphone, but not. I think um, not necessarily about how they might use it or not. However, I think your point, Kadarisan, about navigation, how to use it, yes, you're right. That That's not a guarantee. Just having a phone and access to the internet doesn't necessarily mean the person would be able to navigate every app. And the other thing is, Every app has different interface and different using styles, user styles. So John simply says, apps are overrated. Nowadays, everyone wants to create one. It's too much. And some you probably use once a year. For example, the KWSP app. So we had somebody earlier who does. Um, website could have worked better. Now, I, I think that this is interesting partly because, or particularly because of the sentence, nowadays, everyone wants to create an app. And to be honest, when sometimes when I see the government announcing a new app, that is a little bit how this feels. How now when you want to start a company, everybody has to do social media. Um, and there was a time where every company, and I think this is still the case now, wants to have an app, wants to have content exclusive to an app or wants to drive customers to the application. And 
I, I, I think that in this mad drive towards, not mad, in this drive towards we must have an app, sometimes the question of, yeah, but what is it for is not necessarily considered. I think the other thing that um, perhaps might be useful but the the point about KWSP got me thinking because of course I said earlier I just use the website but it strikes me that I use the website on a laptop and not on my phone and I, the few times that I've tried to access the EPF website on my phone it's not been nearly as easy so some of this might have to do with if all you have is a mobile device and not a laptop or a computer and the only thing that works well is the app if the mobile interface of a website doesn't work well on your phone, then of course you're going to use the app, right? You would think so. I mean, that that's a, that's a logical thing to do. Uh, we also have a conversation that is continuing from our show, from our interview, in fact, because earlier we had Kamarunism bringing up the, the point about, well, I would actually honestly just prefer one app where everything mm -hmm. is there from the government and it's fine. So, um, Kyril, at the point, our guest, spoke about, well, yes, but there are concerns about monopoly. And so now it's kind of continuing off air. We're going to bring it back. But so Kamarun messaged again to say, on the subject of monopoly, um, the government needs to have one framework. So the secure login framework, this would help in terms of security of our data. Um, anyone who wants to build any app at all will need to adhere to these frameworks and standards, like when you're using Google login in many, many apps, which I think is interesting. Um, before we get to Kyril kind of talking about the question of where the government and the private sector should come together in terms of development, Shamila, what do you think? See, I am basic like that, I think. I think I could be very easily sold on the idea of a super app for sheer convenience. For but, sheer but convenience. Just, but not just a super app. It's the one where the government is determining the secure login framework. Ah, that one, I'm not so sure. I also think that I would need a lot of assurances in terms of what the security measures are in the first place. And right now, perhaps it's not very reassuring. And uh, Kyril tweeted us after his interview to say that um, in most cases, apps are better off with the government providing open data and APIs and letting the private sector innovate. So, for example, transportation data, GIS, satellite images, weather and so on. If you're annoyed with super apps, imagine how problematic it could be if every key government service was through one app, one vendor. And the dangers of data leaks and hacks from a single sign-on if implemented poorly. If we want better public digital services and websites, apps, data in Malaysia, then we basically need a top-notch government digital services team similar to what they have in the UK. Um, I, I agree. And that's what I mean by I think the confidence in that one super app is extremely mm. important. Just to close off on this side of things, uh, we do have this from Ro who says, now this is really much better read on the page, but I'm going to try. Apo nak dikata terlalu banyak apps. A-P-P-O, by the way. Yeah, Ro, always appreciate you. This one is hard to translate into a spoken joke. You you challenge us a lot with these written slash spoken out loud jokes, but thank you. Appreciate it. Do keep those thoughts coming. Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? Which have you found useful? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine, tweet us at BFM Radio, BFM eighty nine point nine. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 
It is 7.08. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And uh, we are talking about government apps. This comes from uh, the launch of the Kita Jaga app on Monday, which is aimed at helping people deal with the rising cost of living by giving them location-specific lists of meals and grocery items um, and different prices so that you can choose based on, well, what you're looking for and what you're willing to pay for it. Um, This, though, led us to thinking about apps and how many government apps we currently are required to have um, and how everything seems to be an app these days. And so we are asking you, are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app and how many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. We do have some messages. So we have, um, let's see, let's start with this from Twitter, Just Be A Rock, saying, learn from Singapore's SingPass. Um, well, I haven't personally had to use SingPass, but this isn't the first time that uh, Singapore has come up, I think, in, convers- in this conversation. Um, I will admit they've done a good job with the with the usability of their apps. And at least from my, from what I know, not an overabundance of them. No, but... And, and specifically with SingPass, actually, we are back at the conversation about centralization. Yes. Because the, the whole premise of SingPass is that everything lives within that one application, or at least that you will be able to access many things with your digital identity being assured of by the government. And so it's a few things, right? It's the desire that we all have for more centralization and convenience, very relatable. Who wants 10 apps when you can have one? Um, but the other thing is, I think it's a reflection of the trust that people have in their government to keep their secure to keep their data safe and to continue to provide service that is usable and friendly and ultimately perhaps if we felt a little more strongly that this were the case for us as well we wouldn't have to keep having the conversation about centralization because we would be for it that's true but speaking of um government and security and data. We do have this from Life who says, Ayo, our phones are full of government apps already, la. For example, that app that sounds like, I want to say pickpock and shares your data with that government. That government denies. The app also denies any such surveillance. But um, no, but in all seriousness, I mean, I think that there's something to this, isn't there? Especially because of the way in which we use apps and the premise that they then become entangled or at the very least so intertwined in our lives that they become the preferred option. So this has brought me to the um, actual confession that I perhaps should have made at the start of the show, which is that to a certain extent, this whole conversation to me feels like a ship that has sailed, that we have already now used so much of um, so many digital tools and so many apps and various versions of this that require us to put so much of our information on them that perhaps there isn't really a coming back. I'm not sure. Um, And maybe with every step that I take, the next step feels a little more like inevitable. And I don't know how I feel about that, but I also don't know how to stop. Well, then I I still don't think the conversation is moot because then your feelings about security perhaps are a little yes. moot. Yes. Um, but the question of how you want the government to provide services to you and whether that's always supposed to be in the form of an app, I think remains because then the, the questions become about things like 
quality. What is what would you consider a good or helpful application? Um, or it becomes something like accessibility. How much are you actually helping people access the apps? So yeah, I agree with you. I think on the point of security, I'm just being stubborn for stubborn sake, I think when it comes to saying like, I want to be safe, while acknowledging that you know, there's already a lot of me probably out there floating on the internet. Uh, I think, though, the accessibility question is so important because really, if you're selling us the idea that this is good for us collectively, it provides important services and make things easier, it should actually make it easier for everyone, no? Not just a select group of people who can afford a select set of tools to access those services. Um, so we are going to close off our conversation on this uh in a bit uh, by speaking with Rachel Gong, who is Deputy Dr. Rachel Gong, who is Deputy Director of the Kazana Research Institute. Um, And we're going to be talking about really, does everything need to be an app? Uh, But keep your thoughts coming. Let us know, are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us and keep it here on Inside Story, BFM 89.9. Brave Finance Managers, BFM 89.9. It is just coming up to 7.14. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're closing off our conversation on government apps. How many do we need? Uh, By speaking to Dr. Rachel Gong, uh, Deputy Director of the Kazana Research Institute. Uh, Good evening, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking about government apps like Kita Jaga and My Sajatra. Firstly, what are your thoughts on this digitization of the public sector taking this particular form? Yeah, so I I think it may be uh, worth distinguishing between native apps, um, which are those that are, you know, built specifically for the phones and and things like that, and web apps, uh, which can adjust depending on the operating system um, that a person is using. And so they work on any browser, like a regular website. So on one hand, native apps will generally... Um, give a better experience for mobile users. And that may be important in Malaysia because we're a mobile first country. So they're designed for specific operating systems. They'll integrate better with the overall sort of look and feel and and settings design um, of the system. And so sometimes this is why if if a developer doesn't design separately for both um, Apple and Android, you'll see apps that will come out that will have... um, you know, it'll, it'll be an Apple app that comes up first with limited functionality in Android. And if you try to access the website, if you, you're using it on a laptop, the functionality will be even more limited. Um, so that's a challenge there. Um, but, but on the other hand, developing native apps without good design can cause issues in the long run. Because here you're developing apps ad hoc and you're not thinking about the overall system and how all these apps interact with each other. And so you wind up, for example, with an app that may work in one state uh, for one function, but may not be able to be translated for another. And one of the things that KRI has stressed um, in terms of um, digitalization of the public sector is really interoperability in the design, because you want to have an integrated system um, that will be able to work across ministries and agencies uh, that has an inclusive user interface and an inclusive user experience that works for everyone. If we look beyond the government, though, it does seem like everything is either an app these days or requires one, whether it's parking or paying for your meal. Simply put, why does everything have to be an app? Yeah, so I would say, I would guess that this all has to do with, you know, Apple being the first one out there, right? And saying there's an app for that. I mean, which they've even <laughs> trademarked, right? So that you can, you, if you say there's an app for that, 
um, in, in the context of business and you're not with Apple, they can actually sue you. Uh, but ironically, you know, native apps really began as things that you'd want to have on your phone so that you could use your phone when you didn't have an internet connection. So like a calculator or a music player or something like that. But now that everybody is pretty much always on all the time, you could argue that we don't need those sorts of apps as much. And in any case, a lot of the apps have evolved to depend on connectivity and live data. So you have things like, you know, Spotify and the Weather Channel and Flight Tracker and all of that, which in my opinion, work perfectly well as websites or web apps. And they don't need you to actually, you know, download a native app in order to have that functionality. There's, of course, an argument to be made for convenience. It gets made a lot. Um, Walk us through some of the pros of using apps here. What can apps do that other digital tools might not? Sure. Uh, so there, there are a few things. Um, because they're they're uh, installed and you're, you're, you kind of log into each app, they allow greater personalization. They learn what you do and what you like so you can have your settings and your recommendations really tailored to your preferences and your tastes. Um, you know, because native apps are built for the system, they take advantage of features like the phone camera um, or GPS or notifications, which is harder for a browser to access. So by using a native app, you will get some extra functionality that comes um, with your phone. Um, And because like, you know, as their original intent, they do store data locally. And so they work faster and they work offline. um, And that really, you know, makes the user experience a lot better for a mobile user. So we've been talking about this for for the better part of an hour now. And I guess, expectedly, um, people brought up issues like uh, security, data privacy, and um, furthering that, people have always wondered about how you know storing our data on a multitude of apps might not be safe. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, personal data privacy is, is a topic that KRI has done some work on, and we do think it's an important aspect of digital governance, um, not just in terms of the security, but also in terms of thinking about how we allow um, platforms and, and private companies to have access to all this data. Um, so absolutely, it's it's you know something that we think about when we think about how much data private um, companies collect via apps. Uh, in particular, in Asia, the rise of the super app, right, where it's not just one function, it's it's multiple functions. You'll have your your conversations and your shopping and your location and your travel and these days even your health data, you know, the number of steps you take and your heart rate, if you've got a smartwatch, that sort of thing. It's it's just really amazing how much information we're giving away. Um, and really, you know, people's privacy concerns, if you had asked somebody, you know, even 10 years ago, if they would let somebody follow them around, a stranger follow them around everywhere, all day, every day, they wouldn't say, I, I think they would say absolutely not. But here, you know, you install an app and you say, look, for this convenience, um, let not one stranger, but entire companies do this. Um, so it's it's absolutely something that we want to try and get a handle on. But unfortunately, it's there's no real policy that any one country can enforce, because when it comes to commercial tech, a lot of the tech we use is not ours to regulate. It belongs to the private sector and that's usually based in another country. So we might be able to get a better handle on it when it comes to tech that's used for the public sector. So for example, thinking about something like electronic health records. So we might think about wanting to design a system where patient data can be collected at any healthcare facility, and that's good um, for for, having a more comprehensive um, patient record across different facilities. But 
It can be shared without the patient's approval, but either by means of a passcode or some biometric sensor. And that sort of thinking, you know, really involves this whole sort of interoperable big design thinking um, that's important for public sector digital transformation. So there is also the issue of accessibility, right? Especially for poorer communities, older people who might not be able to afford uh, devices or they might not be familiar with the devices that are used for these apps. What are some of the ways that the government can accommodate or address this? Yeah, so that's a really good point. And actually, um, it could go both ways, right? So yes, the apps, especially the complicated super apps with lots of functionality, um, might be difficult to figure out if you don't have a lot of digital exposure, but you could also kind of make a case for the opposite and say that, well, apps would actually be simpler to use uh, because you don't have to worry about typing a URL and you know navigating through all sorts of drop downs to enter your login and so on and so forth. You just you know press here, press here, press here, and then you get the functionality you need. Um, but either way, until we have reliable internet connectivity, uh, especially in rural areas, and improved uh, digital literacy, we can't be entirely um, app dependent. We can't be digital only, essentially. We can be digital first, but we can't be digital only. So we still need redundancies that will enable offline ways of doing things. Um, so for example, you can't have local authorities say the only way to pay for parking um, is with a parking payment app. You still need to leave in place some sort of parking coupon just as a backup, just in case. Um, at the same time, um, you know, teams working on digital transformation should be designing solutions, not necessarily apps that are um, interoperable and secure and easy to use. Because design, I think, is a key aspect of digital transformation that often gets overlooked. And you can find actually a lot of, you know, you'll see government websites that are clearly functional, but they're designed by database or sort of back-end developers who have very little consideration for how the, the front-end client is going to be using the tool. So, I mean, it's a little bit radical, uh, but I do think that a discussion on web apps or, or websites versus native apps is one worth having by teams doing public sector digital transformation for exactly those reasons. I would think that if you have to pour, you know, resources and time and energy into developing native apps, and you need at least three, you need Android and Apple, and then one for your desktop, um, then you, you're better off kind of developing one web app where the platform will decide or you can sense, you know, what um, operating system you're using and then deliver the user experience for the user based on that. So while we're talking about the experience, right, I understand that not every app is going to have equal UX standards. Uh, but broadly speaking, what are some best practices and principles that should be in place when it comes to apps? And I, I would assume simpler is better. Um, and are we moving in this direction? Yeah, uh, so simpler on the you on the user interface and user experience for sure. But of, of course, that you know usually means much more complicated on the back end. And I think that's one of the things that kind of holds people back. It's such a lot of effort to think about how you're going to translate um, all that code for a simpler interface in the front. Um, the other challenge that I think um, needs to be addressed is mission creep, because what happens is you'll see you know a really good app start out and it'll have a nice sort of straightforward, simple interface, but then the app will get acquired by some bigger company. And then the priority becomes how do we monetize this and increase profits and, you know, let's introduce a few more functions here. And then suddenly you've got this really complicated app that's hard to use. You've got layers of code sitting on top of each other. Uh, and so that becomes now a, a little bit unwieldy and difficult to use. So improving pilot testing 
with different groups of users is certainly one way to try and, you know, deal with that, um, especially really getting, you know, perhaps persons with disabilities or trying out people with different degrees of um, familiarity with apps. Um, and I think, of course, you know, in my opinion, if, if something can be done as a web app, it's worth considering that option as well, rather than simply defaulting to, OK, we have to build a native app for this. Now, you mentioned earlier um, that a good website should be good enough for many of these things. But as the world progresses towards a more digitized, a more tech-reliant space, can we actually afford to function without apps in the long run? Um, I mean, I guess I'm asking, is this just the future? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. And I think with a lot of technology, we sort of always just assume this is the way things are going. And, you know, we're set in this pattern now and let's just chase the, the next thing and the next thing. And you see things that's how like AI develops so quickly. And now we're at a point where, um, you know, there's, there's now this debate of should we pause AI? Should we stop and take a look and think about what we're going to do? And I think it's the same thing for apps, right? So, so much of it depends on what is the function of the app and what we're trying to develop. Um, so we don't have to accept, um, let's just keep rolling, just keep going with the flow. Let's stop and assess, you know, is it more convenient to have a native app or is it more convenient to have a web app? So for some things, it might be more convenient to have a native app for a calculator, for example. Of course, that would look much better as a native app than making me go into a browser and opening a website to do some calculation. But there are plenty of things that we don't need native apps for. So for example, um, uh, the Department of Statistics, DOSIP's open data platform. They built it on a browser. Uh, and for that matter, KKM Now, which is the, um, the new version of the COVID Now website, that works on browsers. And you can get all the data and all the information through your browser, whether you're using a computer um, or you know, Apple or Android. And so for that purpose, it works fine. And so I think we're going to see this discussion come up quite a bit on top of that conversation between um, single-purpose apps and super apps, because what a super app will do is it will lock people into an ecosystem, right? So you start having one app that manages everything. Um, and when, you, when you're locked in there and you become dependent on that, it becomes increasingly hard to get out. But this is the time to have that conversation about interoperability and giving standards for different types of design so that you can work across different platforms, different sectors, and that will give people more options. And I hope there's uh, still room for us to decide on what sort of future we want with respect to technology. Rachel, thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks again for having me. That was Dr. Rachel Gong, Deputy Director of Kazana Research Institute, um, helping us understand and answer the question perhaps of, uh, do we need to have everything on an app? Do send your thoughts through. Um, do you do do send your thoughts through? Are you a fan of this push towards everything being an app? How many apps from the government would you really want on your phone? You can send us a voice note or WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 